Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Vijay Peria Coyle's Healthcare Leadership Podcast. Through stories from international healthcare leaders, this podcast will reveal the secrets to becoming a transformational healthcare leader. Our guest today is Dr. Ross McKinney. Dr. McKinney is the Chief Scientific Officer at the Association of American Medical Colleges. And he's here to tell us a little bit about his career path, his life, and his journey. Thank you so much, Ross, for being here. It's so nice to see you. I'm delighted to be here, Vijay. It's very nice to see you again. Uh, Ross, can you tell us a little bit about your early career and how you got started? Well, um, you know, I could go back a long way, but I'll start with when I arrived at Duke as a resident. Um, and I thought I was going to be a general practitioner, general pediatric practitioner. So I arrived at Duke for my internship. And, and uh, during the first year, I met um, the person that I married, Holly. And so Holly, uh, I said, oh, okay, maybe I want to stick around Durham a little longer. We like it here. Uh, why don't we just stick and I'll, I'll do a fellowship. So I signed up for an academic ambulatory fellowship. I was going to be an academic general pediatrician. And then in the middle of my second year, I had a rotation where my um, attending was Kathy Wilfert. And Kathy is a pediatric infectious disease specialist. Kathy was brilliant. And I said, this woman is absolutely amazing. I need somebody like her to be uh, my mentor. I need to learn to think like she does because I, I, I am just in awe. So, so I went to the people in the ambulatory fellowship program and said, do you mind if I switch to doing pediatric infectious disease? That's no, okay. You were gonna be at Duke and you'll still be at Duke. Um, so I switched to working with Kathy. She was incredible. And, and what I learned from working with Kathy Wilford was that um, you, uh, you may be able to uh, emulate how somebody that smart thinks, but you can never really think like they do because they're smarter than you are. And, and the reality you have to deal with is they're really just that smart. So I learned a lot about problem solving and thinking from Kathy. Uh, I stayed for a fellowship in pediatric infectious diseases. So what was your first job? Towards the end of my fellowship, the faculty member, the most junior faculty member in the division left to take a job at Burroughs Welcome. And so I was offered the position. Uh, it was sort of, and I also got a grant. So I got my own uh, uh, training award, uh, faculty, junior faculty award. So I had a grant. Um, they needed a person. Um, so I got hired. And, and my plan was to stay for a few years. I looked for jobs at other places. And, and Durham just was a really nice place to live. And the people at Duke were really nice. Um, and um, so I stayed at Duke. Um, and, and began with a funded basic science research project. But during the um, end of my funded period on that basic science project, um, HIV appeared. And hmm. we had a team that was put together to do a, a clinical study of AZT because AZT now called Zydovidine was a Burroughs Welcome product. And the person whose job I had taken had gone to Burroughs Welcome and ended up running the AZT project. We gave the first kid anywhere in October, 1986, uh, we gave them Zydovidine in a phase one study. That was my early career. I got into doing clinical trials. Um, I was initially funded on Kathy's grant. It later became my grant to run our pediatric clinical trials unit. And, and I did HIV studies 
throughout the rest of my um, academic career at Duke. It sounds like your mentor, Kathy, had a huge impact on your earlier career and subsequently how your career trajectory shaped up as well. Tell us a little bit about how you switched from basic science research to clinical research. The biggest career turning point was probably that decision to switch from basic science to uh, clinical research. Um, you know, I had a grant. It looked like I was going to be a reasonably successful basic science researcher. I was looking at the um, uh, immune response to enteroviral infections. And, and what I learned was that enteroviruses, which are small RNA viruses, um, probably don't have uh, an important cellular immune response component. And that's what I was looking for. So in fact, I was looking for something that still hasn't been found because it probably doesn't matter that much. Uh, and, and, and in doing so, I discovered I was not a basic scientist. There is an artistic component, an ability to just sort of draw things from the ether that makes a good basic scientist. And I'm an engineer. You know, I need a problem. I need to create a solution. So going into clinical research turned out to be probably the most important uh, career change step for me uh, that I could have had. After uh, starting on clinical research, what did you do next? Did you take on any administrative positions or leadership um, positions? I knew that putting together a team to do clinical research, because it's really a team sport, was the sort of thing I was going to be good at. Now, the next time I got asked to make a change was when I was um, asked to be division chief, because Kathy had a fight with the department chairman. And um, the department chairman said, well, you're, you're now the acting division chief, given that you're like one third of the rest of the division who is still here. So you're now the acting division chief. And, and I said, okay. And I just did it for a couple of years. And then he, he came to me and said, well, you know, I really didn't think you were gonna be a good division chief because you're too nice a guy. You know, you just, you're not tough on people, um, but you're doing a great job. So, so I'm gonna make you the division chief. And I went, oh, great. Now, I didn't think actually there might be a point where I should negotiate for something. That would have been smart, um, but, but I became uh, the division chief. So you became a division chief and uh, probably did that for a few years. Then what came next after that? Uh, and then a few years later, uh, the dean called and said, now, you've been really good at doing clinical research, and we need to up our game in clinical research as a university. Um, so um, would you be interested in being the vice dean for research? So I made the leap from doing basically uh, a lot of clinical work um, and research work related to that clinical work to suddenly being an administrator who was doing a lot of clinical work and a lot of research related to that clinical work uh, and just found that I had to work incredibly hard. But it was, uh, it was a really interesting proposition to try and think about how to make a university, an academic medical center, function well um, in doing research. So that was my job for five years. So you did that for five years. People say that um, mostly in careers, we often pivot and uh, after five to six years. So after that, did you stay on in Duke? What did you do? I stayed at Duke. So what happened uh, after the five years, um, basically I was turning out to be too expensive. I was telling them that to do clinical research, you needed to have professionals doing clinical research. It was not an amateur's game. Uh, and we set up a, a research oversight office. 
And the people who were the bottom line people thought I was too expensive. So um, I got fired from the job and was offered the position of being the uh, director of the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities and History of Medicine. Um, and I'm not a bioethics person by training, but clearly I had done lots of work in what was related to bioethics work. So um, I did that for a decade and had a fantastic time. Uh, I learned a lot. I asked you earlier about pivoting. I certainly see a lot of people do that every uh, few years or so. I've certainly done that in my career. So tell us a little bit about how you came to the AAMC uh, from Duke. What happened? Were you pivoting? Actually, I began as what I thought was going to be a clinician. I became a basic scientist. I switched and became a clinical researcher. I became an administrator. And then I start running a bioethics center and teaching courses uh, in ethics. And I had a fantastic time. So um, it really was fun. And I did not expect, um, I expected to retire uh, from um, running the Trent Center for Bioethics because I really loved that job. They were great people. I loved the people I was working with. Um, but then the AMC called and I went, well, if I'm ever going to make one last change, you know, I'm in my 60s, it's time to do it. So um, I did and moved to uh, Washington part-time. I commute back and forth. As I listen to you tracing your uh, career trajectory, what is remarkable to me is that you've had great successes. You've also had what one might call um, great setbacks. Right, but what is amazing is each time, whether it's a great success or a setback, you seem to actually use both uh, as a stepping stone to the next level. How does that work? Where I can imagine taking success and making it better. How does one take failure and then make it better? Tell us a little bit about that, please. Oh, well, I found actually, uh, you're always looking for challenges and you're looking for learning. Life is all about learning new things. And um, I don't think it's useful to have one identity for yourself. I think it's important to realize we all as human beings have multiple parts of us and, and we're gonna try and utilize those different parts of us in different ways at different stages in our career. Um, so, so when I was rejected at one thing, hey, okay. I guess the thing I should do is figure out what I was good at in that and find some way to carry it forward. Um, and um, I really enjoyed the, um, the challenge of the ethical issues. While I was the vice dean for research, there were big ethical issues that we were dealing with. And I really enjoyed that. And the dean knew that, which is why he said, why don't you take the job running the Trent Center? Because you clearly like the ethics questions. You clearly like the humanities. You bring you know, what you read to, to work every day in our discussions. So, so I just found that growing and the opportunity, when you have a setback, it's another opportunity to grow. And that's just my perspective. I'm just wired that way. How do you deal with uh, being fired? That can be quite crushing for most people. Tell us how you dealt with that, please. Um, it was hard being fired. Um, I have to admit, I was pretty down um, when, when they decided they, they did not. And, and I can understand why, you know, there was a difference of opinion, but I still thought I was doing a great job. And um, I still think I was doing a great job. Uh, and when I uh, left the position, they replaced me with three people. So I was doing a great job. Um, and, um, but it's, uh, I, I have uh, turning things around and, and finding new things and new ways to grow 
just makes the, the, the next job a success. Tell us a little bit about your work at the American Association of Medical Colleges. Clearly you're doing a work that is of national importance with all the things that you've done, uh, advocating for uh, academic medicine across the country, and especially during the pandemic and during really trying times. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. I took the job with an expectation that we would be able to make progress on the rules around human subjects research, because I think that they are not where they should be. And I was ready to participate and advocate for change in that regard. Uh, and instead, I have spent four years playing whack-a-mole, um, trying to make sure that um, policies that would be harmful to uh, either research or researchers or the people we are trying to do the research for um, did not get to be, uh, did not remain as policies. So we've been working for four years um, uh, addressing issues where there were differences of opinion between the administration and us. Um, we're a nonpartisan organization. Yeah, the AAMC is definitely a, a nonpartisan organization and you have a solemn responsibility to all of the medical schools across the nation and the teaching hospitals as well. I think that a lot of the most important work that the AAMC does is advocating uh, for all of us with the government. How has that been in your experience over the last few years? The use of science was different in the last administration than we would have liked. So for the last four years, I've been um, uh, working um, on trying to maintain um, the public's trust in science and um, maintain um, support for science and clear, clarity around science. And then in the last year, it's just been, uh, you know, a, a constant rush of activities dealing with things, the issues around uh, COVID, like why don't we use our academic laboratories for testing? Why did the federal government decide to give all their money and twice as much payment per test to commercial laboratories uh, that they were giving to academic laboratories that could give faster turnaround, equal accuracy, why did they do that? Um, and, um, and they did. Uh, why didn't they exploit all those academic labs? There were lots of things that were going wrong that we had to fight about. But we ended up doing a lot of work that's sort of behind the scenes or in public to uh, work to minimize the damage and maximize the potential good um, that could come from research um, in, in this uh, crisis. The pandemic has certainly disrupted every aspect of medicine, including academic medicine. And where you sit at the AAMC, you probably have some very unique insights about the future of academic medicine and its role. Can you please share a little bit about that? Well, I think that, that academic medicine is still critical to, to the country, uh, to the world. Um, we have a critical role to play because um, medicine is never static. We are constantly learning new things. We are learning how to apply them. And it is academic medical centers that do that work. It is academic medical centers that provide most of the care um, as safety net hospitals, because most of those um, safety net hospitals are, are academic medical centers. It's not uniform, but a lot of them are academic medical centers. They are teaching places. We are doing important work. Um, and um, so it's very easy to be committed. In terms of careers, I think that um, there are challenges in, in a career being funded in research. Research is definitely challenging as a career. I think both of us know that firsthand. 
uh, but it's also incredibly important. So when you say challenges, what exactly are you talking about? I think that MDs, for example, uh, in the long term, my own read is that being an MD, if you want to do research, you are likelier to end up in the clinical research realm than historically, where there are quite a few MDs doing basic science research, physician scientists. I think that that's going to be MD PhDs um, and that the competition is going to. So if you are interested in doing basic science research that speaks to clinical situations and clinical care that draws the back and forth, MD PhD is going to be the way to go because those credentials uh, are going to be critical. And where somebody like me could go in as an MD and get funded to do basic science, I think that's going to be increasingly hard. Um, and, and for time reasons and financial reasons, because MDs often have uh, financial expectations. Research pays less than, than clinical care. And so you, if you want a career in research, you're going to get the excitement of the research, the satisfaction of the research, which can be profound, and you probably won't make as much money. Um, and, and it's important to accept that uh, compromise. And, and I know I always said I was, you know, I'm alive to, to learn and to do interesting things much more than I um, am here to, to make money. I mean, it's nice that I have a good salary, but, but the, real, the real reason for being here was to try and accomplish things. What about women and minorities who don't make that much money to begin with? We know that there are not that many women investigators uh, funded by NIH compared to men. We know that for minorities too, it's much harder. So what does one do when you're an underdog? I think that we are going to slowly but surely repair it. I mean, I think, I, I have hope that we are going to see, part of it is that, you know, the people who have power have to be willing to share in, in the zero sum game that is life. Um, and, and I think that we're going to see more sharing. Uh, when women are making more than half of the um, uh, MD graduates, when uh, um, PhDs, they're far more women. The interesting thing so far has been they have not opted for faculty careers. We have to make faculty careers more appealing to women by changing the way that we provide supports. Um, we have to, um, more men have to participate in childcare. Um, we have to, uh, you know, balance the salary expectations. We have to provide uh, daycare options. Um, we need to make it possible for people to have a balance of career and family. And we have to do so in order to do so that we have to change the expectations of who does what um, in a family. Uh, for minorities, uh, the challenge where we will run into, I, I think that there is a very high, there's a willingness to um, improve the environment so that people can pursue science from very early on. I think the disadvantage that we have had for our underrepresented minorities, we're now getting to where the PhD um, pool, people finishing PhDs um, in, who are underrepresented minorities looks quite like the general population. We have made real progress, but they aren't going into academia. And it may be because um, there are better options. Um, being an academic is hard. Uh, writing grants constantly is hard. The pay is better in you know, working for a pharmaceutical company or, uh, uh, and there's, it's easier working for the government. So I think that we have to make our positions uh, interesting 
so that um, it's appealing and we win on the basis of uh, um, uh, the appealingness of the job. Because I think that we would, most academic institutions would love to see uh, increased diversity uh, in their faculty. I, I think that the, um, the challenge has been um, making sure that when people arrive, they are able to succeed. And a lot of it involves preparation and a lot of it involves uh, being able to compete um, with industry and with other um, options um, so that people want to work uh, in academia. I completely agree that we do need to make changes in the system so that it's much more um, uh, desirable uh, for younger doctors coming behind us, for the younger generations. We need to really focus on wellness and um, uh, life work balance. Any last words of wisdom for us? I think, uh, I hope that people um, go into uh, academic careers with optimism. I hope that we are able to get a better balance of you know, the expectations, things like having to write for grants all the time, that we um, do figure out how to fund basic science and, and uh, clinical research more effectively, um, because I think these are critical things for uh, the country and uh, for the success of the people we would like to see go into uh, academic life. Thank you so much, Ross. Uh, what I loved about our conversation today was how frank you were and how you're so motivated to improve academic medicine, to help uh, junior doctors everywhere. Your pathway and your honesty is really a source of inspiration to all of us. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you, Vijay. Thank you for asking. Thank you for joining us today. For more leadership podcasts, visit us at respect.stanford.edu.